It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, on these Thursday mornings, we've been going back into our little Bible survey series called The Sweeping Saga. And uh, this morning, I want to look specifically at the kingdom prophesied. So before, several months ago, before the semester started, uh, we were walking through just the beginning stages of Scripture, looking at these big global themes. And then last week, we came back in, and we were looking at this idea of the, uh, speaking about like Moses and, and Israel coming into the lane, and what does that look like in terms of this, uh, the rehearsal of the kingdom. So all the stuff that God's been doing, telling Moses to do this over and over and over and over and over again, it was all a rehearsal to bring us to the point uh, where Jesus was going to be the fulfillment of all of that. So today I want to look specifically at this idea of the kingdom being prophesied. So we're moving into the time of the kings and the time of the prophets. And uh, basically we're going to be kind of bringing a bow, if you will, to the entirety of the Old Testament uh, this morning. So in terms of a simple history review of the Bible, uh, from last time, you remember the, the uh, Israelites are in Egypt for 400 years approximately. Uh, they, are, uh, they get out by the blood of the Lamb, right, during this whole Exodus scene with Moses. They go into the wilderness, and after they reject God's promised land uh, through unbelief, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, eventually, after 40 years, they enter the promised land through the uh, leadership of Joshua. They go through, and they start conquering the 31 hostile empires. And then we enter this time, which is typically referred to as the time of the judges, and it's called the time of the judges because they're judges. That was simple. <clears throat> uh, but we have a whole book called Judges, and uh, of course, there's this whole pattern where uh, God would bless them, and they were doing really well, but they would get comfortable, and as they get comfortable, they would begin to fall into sin, and as they start falling into sin, some, some outside force would come in, they would conquer them, and of course, here they are in captivity, and they would start to cry out to God, saying, God, we don't like captivity, and God would send a judge or a rescuer, and as uh, they would free them, and then they would start going to a time of prosperity, and as long as the judge was alive, they are doing well, but as soon as the judge died, things started not going so well again. And then it was just this pattern over and over and over again. And by the end of the book of Judges, what we have is this guy by the name of Samuel who comes on the scene. So 1 Samuel begins with the story of Samuel. And he technically is considered by most scholars the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And we know that there were prophets prior to this point. For example, Moses is considered a prophet. But in terms of the typical prophet, uh, the prophet sense, uh, most of the prophets were understood as the uh, intermediator between God and the, the kingdom, or the, or the king, if you will. Uh, so Samuel was the very last of the judges, the first of the, of the prophets, because obviously he's the one who anointed Saul and Samuel. And during the middle of the Samuel thing, uh, the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, Samuel, hey, we love what you've been doing. Hey, thank you for being a judge. But we want a king, and we want to be just like all the other nations, and we just want to be, hey, hey, we want, uh, hey, we want to be like them. Of course, it grieves Samuel, and Samuel complains to God, and God just says, hey, look, uh, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me, so give them what they want. And we move, Israel moves from a theophany uh, to a monarchy. In other words, up until this point, Israel has been governed by a king, his name is God. And at this point, there's, been a, there's a transition uh, in, in the, just in the governmental structure of Israel, and no longer is it God who is king, now we have a man who is king. And course, they come under the authority of Saul, and then eventually Saul is rejected. It goes to David, and then David's son Solomon, and then after Solomon, the kingdom splits, 
and we have two kingdoms. We have a northern kingdom called Judah, which Rehoboam, or sorry, uh, a northern kingdom called Israel, which Jeroboam takes, and we have the southern kingdom called Judah, which uh, Solomon's son of Rehoboam takes. And from this point forward, there's about a thousand years from the time of David to the time of Jesus, and this is the time of the kings, this is the time of the prophets, uh, this is the time of judgment, this is the time of all that kind of stuff is happening uh, in that thousand-year uh, time frame. Um, and maybe just one thought, even before we get into the prophets themselves, it's interesting that when you look at the kings, so again, Israel looks at Saul or Samuel and says, hey, Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel says, okay, I'll give you a king. Isn't it interesting that every single king, the downfall of every single king is disobedience? Uh, Saul, Saul here is his king. He looks like a king. He acts like a king. He talks like a king. And God says, hey, I want you to destroy the Amalekites. And hey, I, I, want, you to, I want you to move forward in this. And I, I want you to remove this symbol of the flesh in Israel. And of course, Saul sort of does it, but he doesn't do it in his fullness. And therefore, God says, hey, you've been disobedient. I'm going to actually reject you as a king. And I've chosen the better man, which was David. David comes upon the throne, and God makes a covenant with David and says, hey, David, hey, I'm going to establish a covenant with you that your line is going to be established. So whether you obey or whether you don't obey, hey, I'm, I'm choosing you in your line, which we understand is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But isn't it interesting that David's downfall is disobedience? And, of course, you have this whole scene with David and Bathsheba, and, of course, the outflow of that is the death of a child. And then, of course, you have some serious soul problems with David. It begins to tear apart the kingdom. You have all his whole family crisis. All that came out of this idea of disobedience. Uh, Solomon is now king, David's son. And what was Solomon's downfall? A lot of wives. Just kidding. That was, that was part of it. But it was all from disobedience. And the fact that here, here is Solomon, he has all these wives, and the wives are now making petitions to him saying, hey, I, I want my gods from my culture back in my town. And of course, Solomon started to set up all these uh, idols and all this worship kind of stuff. And it's interesting that Solomon's downfall was that he was actually not behaving as a king as a king ought to behave according to what the kings were prescribed for by God. And so you start walking through the kings, and it seems like every king had a major downfall, and it was disobedience, which is an interesting thought for our lives. Uh, Jesus said stuff like, hey, you love me if you obey my commandments. That there's, there's something about this idea of obedience that is so important to God, that it's not that we're just robots and we just, you know, we're, we're mechanically doing things. We have a choice of whether we're going to obey or not obey. But God puts a lot of significance, it seems like, in Scripture in this idea of obedience. That you are to come under and literally be restrained by the boundaries of Scripture. That you're really called to live out the life of a Christian, whatever that looks like. Which then begs the question, if, if every major character, if they had a downfall, it was because of disobedience. What does it say about my life if I'm allowing disobedience in my own soul? Just something to ponder afresh. But what's interesting is you look at the kings, it reveals that a human king is insufficient and unable to be everything a king ought to be. That there is something that, yet yeah, it's not that David was a great king and every king was compared against David. We understand that. But David is still a, a miniature picture of the reality that there is a king in the kingdom. It's just not David. It's Jesus Christ. And even David, as great as David was, and as much as we celebrated David, and whoa, we went and we left to go back to the days of David and Solomon, even that was insufficient. Because the reality is, is no human king can fully be king of the kingdom. That place is reserved for God alone. 
it's during this whole season of the, of the kings that the major prophets show up. And that's interesting. In our, in our scripture, we have 16 prophets that have books. But you realize there was countless prophets be, besides them. Uh, in fact, Samuel started a school of the prophets. Wouldn't that be neat? Uh, so here's Samuel, of course, the whole time of Saul and all that kind of stuff. He starts a school of the prophets. And so you could come down and you could learn to be a prophet. Doesn't it just sound fun? You could be a prophet or a prophetess, right? And, you know, they would teach you how to stand properly. They would tell you how to use your vocal cords correctly. They would teach you how to do hand motions, right? Because all good prophets had to have hand motions. And, you know, and so they walk you through uh, how to be a prophet. Isn't it interesting? We have no record of any prophet being chosen from the school of the prophets. I think that's hilarious. How did God choose the prophets? I don't know. He chose random people. And most of the prophets, they did not want to be a prophet. In fact, most of the prophets were not full-time prophets. They had their full-time job. They did their thing over here. And God just says, hey, I want you to speak this. And they're like, well, can, can I finish planting? God's like, no, speak. And they would go and they would speak and they would come back to the planting. So it's interesting that even most of our prophets, now there are some prophets who seem like they were mainly prophets. Like Jeremiah, he mainly was a prophet. And his whole life was wrapped up in this whole idea of the prophet. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of the prophets, they just had a season of a prof, prophetic thing, and then they just went back to their normal activities. How did God choose them? Were they all rich? No. Were they all good looking? Obviously not. Hey, hey were, were they all successful? No. Were they all kings? No. Did they all go to a school called the School of the Prophets? No. So it's, it's odd to me that it's just God randomly selects, selects these people. Uh, he selects men. He selects women. There were some women prophets. So we have this whole group of prophets that were prophesying during the whole time of the kings. So even though we have 16 in the scriptures, we, obviously there's a lot more, more than that. For example, Elijah and Elisha never wrote books, and yet there are two pr prominent prophets in the scriptures. But of our 16, uh, we have two groupings. Uh, we have what we call the major prophets. Majorly important. And we have the minor prophets, which are more important than just being minor. Right? And the reason we call them major prophets and the reason we call them minor prophets is not because of significance or importance, it's because of the length of their books. Right? So if you go to the if you go to a library and you say, I want to see the major works of Aristotle, right? Oh, <gasps> he wrote a lot of stuff. So we give you this huge <clears throat> collection. And they're like, could could I see the works of Bart? I don't know who he is, but Let's say he wrote some stuff. And you go in, Bart, they say, oh, well, we have a minor collection. Why, he wrote one page, right? So it's, it's a minor work. In a similar sense, that's what the scriptures are doing. So when we call them major prophets, we're not saying that, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are the really important ones. But poor Hosea, at least he got included, right? That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, is that the books Isaiah through Daniel are the, are the longer ones. Therefore, we call them a major work. And all the other prophets are a little bit smaller, so we call them a minor work. So that's just how we, if that helps. Uh, it's not for importance. And again, there's no one type of prophet. So if you look at even just their backgrounds, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were priests. Uh, Daniel was a government employee. Amos was a fig tree farmer and a shepherd. Uh, Micah, we don't know what his background was, but we know he's from an agricultural town. So we presume he probably had some sort of agricultural um, background to his life. Zephaniah was a member of the royal family. In fact, he mentions the fact that he was the great-great-grandson of the godly king Hezekiah. So we have a whole slew of people. And of course, we have some from the northern kingdom. We have some from the southern kingdom. So it's, there is no one type of prophet, if you will. 
Uh, Hebrews 1.1 is fascinating. Looking back, so here's a writer of Hebrews looking back to this time of the prophets. And the writer of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Now he's distinguishing the fact that back in the day he used the prophets, but right now he's using Jesus Christ. That, hey, that, that, was, that was the old thing, and it wasn't bad, it was good, God used it, and God blessed the prophets, that was awesome. But how is God speaking to us now? He's speaking to us by the Son, which is just an amazing thought. But look, look at this. Back in the day, various times, and in various ways, God spoke. So I just want to look at this really quick. Various ways. How did God speak in various ways through the prophets? Well, there seems to be three primary ways. Number one, through the written form. Now, a lot of the prophets wrote in poetry, which is neat. And we don't typically see it as prophecy because Hebrew prophecy most of the time does not rhyme, right? So in English, we like to rhyme everything, right? I'm a poet who didn't know it, or those kind of things, right? But in, but in Hebrew, it's not, about the, it's not about the rhyming. But obviously, they wrote prophecy, a lot of the prophecy was merely speech, or what we would call oracles. So some guy would stand on the street corner, he would start to yell and bark and tell, you know, yell at people, and in the midst of so doing, he was given an oracle, he was given an oration, he was given a speech, and that was a prophecy. Or, God at times would use drama. And, you know, hey, we have that phrase around here, that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so here's this prophet who says, all right, uh, God looks at, looks at this guy and says, hey, I want you not merely to speak a prophecy, I want you to live it out. Uh, God comes up to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry this prostitute. Well, well God, I'm, I'm a good Jewish man. I, I, I don't marry, I don't, I don't hang out with prostitutes. A good Jewish man doesn't, doesn't marry a prostitute. God goes, I know, I know. But I want you to do this and I want you to truly, genuinely love this woman because I, I want Israel to see my heart for Israel. And Israel has prostituted herself with the world, and I am still going after her. So would you go after her? Would you be a demonstration, a drama picture to the Israelites of who, who I am and my heart for the people? And Hosea, obviously, in a phenomenal sense, has this life that is a drama of the heart of God. But let me give you a few of my other favorite ones. <laughs> These are horrible. Isaiah. God looks at Isaiah and says, Isaiah, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to go outside naked, and I want you to just walk around. Now, you, you realize that's awkward. And you're like, well, yeah, but this was back in the day, and, you know, maybe this was more normal. It would not be normal now. This is definitely not normal then. And they're in a much more high, what are they, like a honor culture. You do not walk around naked. Please don't do this, right? But here's God. He looks at Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah, I want you for three years to walk around naked. Could you imagine how awkward this must have been? On the very first day, here's this lady going out with her son and daughter, you know, these little kids, to go get water at the well. And here they are. They're down at the well, and this woman looks up, and Isaiah comes out. And suddenly she's like, ah, don't look, kids. Right? Because this is awkward. But by the end of three years, it'd just be like, oh, yeah, it's just Isaiah. No big deal. Right? I mean, because at some level, I mean, it's still awkward, but after three years, you'd be like, dude, dude is crazy. You know, you just start getting used to the fact that wherever Isaiah goes, he goes. But look at why Isaiah did it. So this, it was the idea that 
Israel should trust God rather in their ally, Egypt, with the Assyrian conflict. So here the, here are the Assyrians, this outside world force, power of the day, is coming in. And what does the northern kingdom Israel do? Runs down to Egypt and says, hey, Egypt, could you help protect us? And what God is trying to communicate to his people is, hey, look, you are to trust in your God, not in the strength of Egypt. So don't turn to Egypt for the strength to keep you from the Assyrians. Turn to me, says God. And you're like, well, why would he be naked? Well, what's clarified in Scripture is the fact that Assyria is soon going to conquer Egypt. And in so doing, not only is the Egyptians going to be carried away naked, but so are you in the process. So, of course, Isaiah is dramatizing this whole thing. That's awkward. I don't know if we want to be prophets anymore, do we? <clears throat> All right. Jeremiah. Let's get off of Isaiah. Jeremiah had some drama. Now, he did a lot of oracle speech stuff. He had some, obviously, he had some written uh, prophecy, but he also acted some stuff out. Jeremiah was asked to go down to the potter shop. So here's Jeremiah. He walks down, and here's this potter shop, and here's this potter who has this lump of clay. And the, and the potter is making this little bowl kind of a thing. And in so doing, oops, he messes up. And so he kind of smashes it, and he starts all over. And so <clears throat> God uses Jeremiah down to the potter shop as an illustration that God is going to crumble Israel and start over just like a potter does with clay. And it was an acted-out drama of something that God wanted to communicate. Uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel is another awkward one. Uh, God asked Ezekiel to shave his, he shave his head and divide his hair into three piles. Isn't this the most bizarre thing? Now, one pile he was to burn, one pile he was to jab with a sword, which I don't even know what that... Cha, 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 cha. <laughs> the hair's already cut, so I don't know what it's going to do to it. But, and then one pile he was supposed to toss into the wind. And the whole point of this is that if God's people didn't turn from their wickedness and sin, God was going to destroy their homeland. That he was, he was acting this thing out. Maybe my favorite and most horrid example of this whole drama thing is Ezekiel chapter 4. God looks at Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, I want you to take a brick and I want you to inscribe the name Jerusalem on it. And I want you to put the brick over there. And then I want you to kind of set up this little like army guy thing around it. And you're, I want you to have like a seize force against the brick. I want you to take little, little spit wads and throw it at the brick. And I want you to take some catapults and like a little spoon and, you know, huck it at the brick so that, you know, you're, you're having this siege upon the brick. And I'm gonna, I want you to take this metal pan, and I want you to put it between you and the brick as, as a division thing. Now, this makes no sense. But could you imagine if you were a person in Israel, and you know that God has used this man called Ezekiel, and you go out one day, and here's Ezekiel playing with blocks and spitwads and stuff. It's just like, what is he doing? And so, of course, you know, you kind of gather in. You're like, okay, what's going on, Ezekiel? Now, in the middle of all this, God gives Ezekiel an, an intriguing commission. He goes, Ezekiel, I, I want you to lay on your left side. Oh, I can do that. Well, I want you to lay on your left side one day for every year of rebellion that Israel had. Well, how many years was that? Well, it was 390 years. So I want you to stay on your left side for 390 days. Like permanently on my left side? Yeah. What if in my sleep, I, like, I toss and turn? God goes, don't worry, I have this figured out. I'm going to, like, harness you. I'm going to tie you up so you cannot move. This is miserable. 390 days. Now, 
I, I've heard in, in the hospitals, right, they, they want you to move around on your bed. Why? Because you, you, know, you get bed sores if you're on one side for too long. Isn't that right, Sandy? You're the nurse, so I figured I better check, check my documentation here. But could you imagine laying on your side for 390 days on the ground? And God says, well, it, that's okay. Well, how am I going to eat? Well, before you lay on the ground, I want you to get a whole bunch of wheat and barley and some lentils, and I want you to get some water, and I want you to put it near you so you can reach and grab it because you can't move. Well, how am I going to cook it? God says, not a problem. Uh, you have a pan, and you can just cook it over some human waste. And, of course, Ezekiel, sorry, this is awkward. Ezekiel goes, um, uh, I, I can't do that. I, I'm, I, I can't defile myself like that. God goes, oh, that's true. All right, we can use cow dung. As if that's any better. So could you imagine, either someone's having to bring this over, or he has to pile it up near him so that he can still grab it for 390 days. That's longer than a year. So could you imagine, here's this prophet outside, laying down on the ground for over a year, and you just walk by him, and you're like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm here for one day for every year that Israel's rebelled. And the whole time he's throwing little spit wads at this brick. Right? Talking about the fact that Jerusalem is going to have a siege. And then God says, hey, when those 390 days are done, I'm going to flip you over, and I'm going to tie you down so you're going to stay on your right side for as many, for many days as the years that Judah has rebuilt. Well, how long was that? Well, it's been 40 years. So you're going to spend 390 days on your left side, and you're going to spend 40 days on your, sorry, 390 days on your left side, 40 days on your right side. What was, what was Ezekiel doing? He was acting out a crazy drama that God was using to prophesy to a people. Let's get off of that. That's awkward. <clears throat> so again, God was communicating through the prophets through various ways, like writing through speech and through drama. But there's also a variety of messages. Now, it's interesting when we talk about prophecy, there's two types, we can call it two types of prophecy. There is the foretelling of prophecy, and there is the fourth telling a prophecy. So really quick, I want to walk this through you. Walk this through. So foretelling, right, is I'm over here, I'm looking into the future, and I am prophesying about something that is to come. I am foretelling some event, right? Now it's interesting, about a third of the messages were foretelling. So only about 30% of the messages that the prophets proclaimed was a foretelling, a prophecy into the future kind of stuff. Isn't that interesting? Now, that's kind of split into two groups. So one of those is this proclamation of the coming of the Messiah. So of that 30%, a lot of that was, or I should say some of that, was a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. For example, and we've gone through these so many times, but just to, just to highlight and meditate upon it afresh, uh, Daniel predicts the exact time of Christ coming into Jerusalem. Uh, here's Jesus. He comes up on the colt. He looks over Jerusalem and begins to weep. And he says, oh, had you known even this day that your king was going to come into your gates? And you're like, well, how, how would the people have known of, of Jesus' triumphal entry? Well, it was prophesied. Do you know what day Jesus walked in, or sorry, rode into Jerusalem on a colt? On the very exact day that Daniel prophesied that it would. When you calculate the days out in Daniel's prophecy of when the Messiah was going to show up in Jerusalem, he shows up to the very day. That's amazing. That's like, that's a great prophecy. Uh, Zacharias said that it would be done on a colt, the colt of a donkey. And why, why a donkey? 
because a donkey was a symbol of peace. If a conqueror was coming into a, into a city and he was riding upon a stallion, it meant that he was going to conquer it. He was going to take it over, demolish it. But if a, if a man came into a new city riding on a colt, it meant that I'm, I'm willing to bring peace. I will not destroy this place. Jesus is bringing peace. There's a reason he's riding on a donkey. And Zechariah, hundreds of years before the Messiah, prophesied that's what Jesus would do. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Micah declared that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Hosea wrote that he would be called out of Egypt. Zechariah said that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver and the money would be used to buy the potter's field. Isaiah wrote that he would be numbered with criminals. David pre predicted that his hands and his feet would be pierced and that his clothes would be divided. These are like specific, specific prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. Now, so 30% of what the prophets did was the predicting. It's that foretelling stuff. But it's interesting, 2% dealt with the coming of the Messiah. 1% had end time stuff in mind, the, the whole eschatology, or what we would call our end times, right? So we haven't got there yet. We're, we're heading closer to it every day. But whatever that looks like, right, 1% of the prophet's proclamation was about the end time stuff. 2% was about the Messiah. But over 90% had to do with the prophet's immediate future. Right, so here's Jeremiah, he's standing in Jerusalem, and he says, hey guys, Babylon is on the horizon. Babylon is going to come over and he's going to ransack us. And they're going to take you into Babylonian captivity. Right, so it's, it's the immediacy of the world events where most of the prophecy was taking place. So again, after the kingdom splits into Judah and Israel after the time of David and Solomon, you start having all these prophets who, who God is using to say, hey, look, Assyria is going to come in. Hey, this is going to be broken off. Hey, hey, Babylon's going to take this over. So there's all this kind of predictive things, but it's more world events at the time. So again, it was predicted that in 722 B.C., Assyria would invade and conquer Israel. 587 B.C., Babylon, who overtook Assyria, would come in and, and conquer Judah. All this kind of stuff was happening in, in this prophetic stuff. Now, I know this is hard to read, but uh, just as a quick thought, in terms of the books that were written, there were certain prophets to the different kingdoms. For example, uh, in the southern kingdom, Judah, we had the prophets Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Obadiah. So those were all prophets that God sent to the southern kingdom of Judah to prophesy <clears throat> to the southern kingdom, whether about world events or uh, a call to repentance. To the northern kingdom, Israel, we have prophets like Elisha, Hosea, Amos. God sent two prophets to Nineveh, right, Jonah and Nahum. Uh, then there was some prophets during the Babylonian captivity, like Daniel and Ezekiel. And then after Cyrus lets them return back to Jerusalem, uh, there are several prophets in this post-exile. So after the Babylonian captivity, like Haggai, or Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and the Italian prophet Malachi, or Malachi. All right, so you have this foretelling element, right? So about a third of the, of the prof, prof, prophet's work is this foretelling, but two-thirds is what we could call fourth telling. Well, what's foretelling all about? It's, it's, it's content, but it's basically, in this, in this case, it's a call to repentance. Do you realize that what most of the prophets were doing were standing up saying, repent. Turn back to God. Repent. Hey, turn back to God. Hey, you've gone astray. You've prostitute, prostituted yourself with the world. Hey, come back to God. So they were reminding people of God's law and the biblical standard for what's right and what's wrong. They were warning listeners of God's blessings and curses, 
and they were telling them to turn from their sin and return to God. Now, there's this interesting word in Hebrew that keeps showing up, and it's the word shuv. And this word, it could be translated turn or repent uh, or return, but it's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. And a lot of that's in the prophets. But let me just give you a few of these examples of just this prophetic call of, hey, repent, 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 return, return. So Jeremiah 18, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one of you from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Hosea 14, 1 says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Joel 2.13 says, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Ezekiel, I love this passage in Ezekiel because he uses that shuv term four times. Uh, well, in, in these two passages, but he uses them two times in each of the passages. So Ezekiel 18.30 says, Repent and turn. So shuv and shuv from all your transgressions so that iniquity or sin will not be your ruin. And then in chapter 33, 11, he uses it twice again. He says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? So you, you begin to have this cry of the prophets that are just like, Hey, you've gone astray. Return. It's the same call that Jesus gave to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Hey, return to your first love. Hey, come back. I'm, I, I want you back in. I'm wooing you over back to me. That's that idea. So again, we're talking about this idea of the kingdom prophesied. So God establishes a kingdom. He says, oh, I, I'm the king of the kingdom. And what, what does humanity do? We shake our fists in his face and we rebel. And what we see in the story of Adam and Eve is that they, they choose independence. They reject the kingdom that God has established. And hey, they, they, want their own, they want to establish their own kingdom. And from that point forward, God is reestablishing something. He has something coming on the works. He says, hey, there, there's a kingdom that is coming. Hey, there's, hey, I'm going to have you rehearse the kingdom over and over and over and over and over again. Why? So that when the king shows up, you go, whoa, there he is. Hey, during the whole time of the, of the human kings, there's going to be this prophet saying what? The king is coming. Hey, the, the king is on the horizon. Hey, there is coming a day. So you need to return. You need to repent. Come back to God. Why? Because the kingdom is going to be reestablished. And there's this whole, the whole idea of this kingdom being prophesied, pointing to the reality that Jesus is coming and that he is going to fulfill all righteousness. But I want to end with this. When you look at the hearts of the prophets and this idea of they're, they're looking forward and they're looking at what Jesus is going to be doing in the coming of the coming kingdom. But when you look at what the, what the prophets were doing and when you were looking at just their heart of the coming of the king, it's interesting that they had this groan. They had this, oh, they had this passion for what's to come. I, I often tell the students, it, it's just, it's humorous to me. And I, and I did this all growing up. But it's like I, I, I read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, and I, and I say things like, wow, wouldn't it have been great to be like Daniel? Wouldn't it would have been phenomenal to like have a life like Joseph or Moses or not Isaiah, but you know, like some, some of these great guys from history, right? As, as we read the Bible, we're just like, wow, I, lo I love to step in the shoes of Abraham. And, but it's interesting, when, when you get to their heart and when you start to see what they're writing, you, you get this idea that if you were to ask them, hey, can I be more like you? They'd be like, what are you talking about? I, I want to be more like what you have. 
Like, like, like we, we go back in the Old Testament and we marvel at what God was doing through the lives of these great saints of old. Through Abraham and Moses and, you know, Elijah and Elisha and Daniel and all these, you know, uh, Esther and Ruth. And, and we're like, wow, what, what would it have been like to be them? And yet their longing is to have what you have, which is the fullness of the Spirit. You realize that Jesus in, in John chapter six, 16 says, it's better that I leave. Why? Well, because if I don't leave, I cannot send my Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father to you. That there's something after Pentecost that we have access to, that we just, we take for granted, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, that until Pentecost, they never had. Now, was the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament? Sure. But it was for activity or, you know, for a prophecy or some sort of a job. It was for a work. It was an event kind of a thing. It wasn't for life. And so you, I'm going to read these to you, but you start getting this groan of the prophets that said, oh, there's coming a day when what we have in part is going to become in fullness. You realize if you go back to Moses, Moses would say, oh, I'm so, I wish I could be you. Because now you can live with the Holy Spirit for life, for just daily activities. Isn't that an amazing thought? According to Jesus, what the disciples had after Pentecost was even better than them walking with Jesus physically before Pentecost. That's a crazy thought to me. Because if you get asked me a choice, I'd love to have the physical Jesus right here. Wouldn't you? We could have him teach. Oh, probably share a story. Probably about a farmer. He liked farming stories. Right? And we'd be like, whoa, we'd slap him on the back and big bear hugs. And Jesus says, yeah, that's great and all. But do you realize that what you have in the Spirit of God is actually better? And that was actually the groan of the prophets. The, the groan of the Old Testament. L listen to these. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34. Jeremiah writes, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. See, there's coming a day. Oh, the Messiah's on the way. Oh, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20 says, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. Uh, later on, Ezekiel says in chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the hardest stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. See, there was a cry of the prophets. There was a cry of the Old Testament saying there is coming a day when the Messiah is going to come. Oh, the king is about to return. Hey, he's on the horizon. Oh, just be expectant. And we're about to get to it. So as you get this progression, hey, there's this king. There's a kingdom, and there's a king, and he was rejected. And then that kingdom was really planted into a, into a people called Israel. And that people, Israel, began to rehearse the coming of the kingdom. And then God sent all these prophets to say, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. Hey, repent, repent. Why? Because, hey, God wants to draw you in. Now, next week, uh, we're going to look at the, basically the kingdom in waiting and this idea that for 400 years, there was no prophetic voice. For 400 years, there just seems to be silence. 
And we're kind of look at what was going on during those 400 years, and then we're going to talk about the coming of the king, which is going to be kind of fun. So let's pray. Lord, we love you. Just thank you that uh, the realities of what we have in the new covenant is, oh, so good. That what the prophets were crying out for, Lord, we can actually participate in. Lord, I pray that you would call us back. That, Lord, if there's areas of our heart that, that we have disobedience or that there's areas of our souls or our lives or our minds that have not come into obedience, into alignment with your true standard. Lord, just as the prophets stood up and cried out, repent, turn, come back. Lord, would you, through your spirit, cry out into our souls the same thing. Lord, don't allow a single area of our life just to go rampant, to go in our own way, to have rebellion or independence. Lord, would you draw us back? Would you woo our hearts afresh? Would you call us unto you. And Lord, I thank you that we have a whole collection of writings and drama and oracles of people that you have sent to declare who you are. That somehow when they were making these prophetic announcements, we can clearly see you in the midst of it. Lord, I love the fact that what we get to experience in the new covenant is what the old covenant longed to have. May we not take it for granted. May we live by your spirit afresh today, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing in these days. <clears throat> Just give the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.